Well, thanks for coming out in the cold this morning, braving the cold. Glad you're here as we begin a new sermon series called Anchored. We live today in what some social scientists call liquid modernity. Not water world. And I do apologize for bringing that film back up into your memories. <laughs> Not water world, but liquid modernity. Liquid, well, what on earth is liquid modernity? Uh, li liquid modernity is what sociologists, some anyway, have termed our present condition in which change is so rapid, rapid that no social institutions have time to solidify. And we've seen, you know, huge shifts in uh, some of these social institutions, in government, in education, all the teachers say amen, uh, in, in interpersonal communication. Think about it. We don't speak so much face-to-face -face anymore. We text each other, and even then we don't use words. We use emojis. So there's sh shifts in even things like interpersonal communication. But in the last few years, we've even seen change in things that go back millennia that haven't changed, but now we're seeing change in uh, marriage, and even in gender. But, but gender isn't the only thing that's fluid nowadays. It seems like everything is. When things so fundamental get redefined, we lose our orientation. Everything rapidly, constantly changing. This is what uh, the guy, the sociologist who coined the term um, liquid modernity said about it, and it's a pretty sad commentary. He wrote, in a liquid modern life, there are no permanent bonds, and any that we take up for a time must be tied loosely so that they can be untied again as quickly and as effortlessly as possible. When circumstances change, as they surely will in our liquid modern society over and over again. No permanent bonds, socially, relationally, personally, morally, individually. That's sad. That's scary. So we find ourselves adrift on a sea of relativity. Now, this isn't anything new. Even the Apostle Paul described uh, the believers in Ephesus before they had come to Christ this way, as being tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now, if we indeed live in a time when everything is fluid and everything changes and nothing is permanent, then the only thing that we're left with is ourselves. And if all we have is ourselves, then the choosing individual, the I, becomes the primary reality and the greatest good becomes the liberation of the individual's will. This is what another sociologist philosopher wrote. In our liquid modernity, individuals hold maximal, that is maximum, freedom of thought and action, and society itself becomes a collection of strangers, each pursuing his or her own interest under minimal constraints. Well, some people read that. They say, what? Maximum freedom and minimal constraints? Cool. I mean, that's awesome. Isn't that what we want? What is wrong with that? you listen really closely, you can hear Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in those words. 
Ah, you can be like God. Maximum freedom, minimal constraints, the liberation of the individual's will is the highest good. Hmm. Well, here's one thing that's wrong with that, is if it's true, then we really do lose everything permanent and transcendent. Here's what another uh, thinker wrote, Dr. Larry Arn, who's the president of Hillsdale College. He said, change can be the eternal only in the sense that everything changes. But if everything changes, then nothing is permanent and nothing is transcendent. And you say, well, so what? So what if there's nothing permanent and nothing transcendent? Well, it's true, of course, that uh, most people, uh, including us, probably don't get up in the morning, and the first thing that we say is, you know what's missing in my life? I just, I just really need a connection with the transcendent. We don't say that with those words. But the reality is that that's a part of the longing of human nature. It's a part of who we are to want to be connected to something bigger and greater than us, that gives meaning and purpose to life. That's the transcendent. Something beyond us, something greater than us that gives meaning and purpose to life. Bruce talked last Sunday about our need for common ground, to move towards common ground. As our engaged theme leads us this year, we're going to want to think about common ground. And one area of common ground that, that we have with all people is this longing for the transcendent. Just like a plant needs sun and water and good soil to grow so we people we need love and we need work and we need connection to something bigger than us something larger than us something permanent something that lasts something that's transcendent well we're starting into this sermon series called anchored and we're going to say that there are things that are permanent that are transcendent and believe me, you might feel it. You, you feel the fluidity of our culture and the constant rapid change. And one thing that does in all of our hearts is it gives us a longing, a desire for that permanence, for that, that thing that doesn't change. And what are those things? What, what are those things that we can put an anchor down in that, that will give permanence and solidness and, and transcendent connection to our lives? Well, we're going to talk about God is the rock and we're going to talk about the fact that this God who is, who is the rock, he has revealed himself through the word, the Bible. He's also revealed himself through creation in nature. And uh, ultimately, he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. We're going to talk about the fact that God is good even when life hurts. And we're going to talk about the fact that God's ways are good even when they're hard. These are anchors, anchors for us in a fluid and liquid world. Let's begin today with the truth that God is the rock. Not this rock. This rock. Does anybody recognize that rock? That is one serious rock, let me tell you what. That is Masada. If uh, you were looking in the opposite direction, you'd look out over the Dead Sea. That is one big rock. When we think about God as rock, Kind of keep that rock in mind. It's pretty solid. It's pretty permanent. Um, wow. You, if you're going to found and root and anchor your life in something, that would be a solid thing to anchor it in. Now, 
the Bible actually uses this as a metaphor of the rock a lot for God, which is not surprising because that's what Palestine looks like. Very rocky. There are a lot of rocks, so this would obviously be an important metaphor. In one of his most famous parables, Jesus used the metaphor of a house built upon a rock to describe those who hear and obey his teaching. Those who, who, who listen to and hear and obey, who put into practice the teaching of Jesus, that they're like a house built on a rock. And when the floods come, which they inevitably do, when the flood comes, the house stood firm because it had its foundation on the rock. It, it was anchored, it was rooted, it was grounded, it was founded in the rock. On another occasion, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, gold stars. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is exactly right, Peter. And upon this rock, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, the truth about Jesus, upon this rock, the truth of Jesus, I will build my church. Peter got the message and he carried on that message in Acts 4 uh, when he is talking to J the Jews in the temple. He says this, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. Now, in, in all of these contexts, uh, the people who are listening to what is being said are Jews. And they, they would have had a very rich and uh, thorough understanding of this metaphor of rock from their scriptures. And they, they would have right away connected this because it was a powerful and prominent uh, metaphor. And so let's take a look at some of that background. Let's go back to the Hebrew scriptures and see that this whole metaphor of God as rock, God as the rock, uh, comes up at some very key and important moments in the history of Israel. Now we're going to read some scriptures and whatever is bolded, I want you to read along with me, okay? So you all read out loud the parts that are bolded. So the first one is Moses' song. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses writes and uh, communicates this song to the people uh, that he wants them to memorize and to recite. And it's kind of a prophetic psalm, if you will. But it's kind of a summary. He's been preaching and teaching to them for decades, and he kind of puts it all together in this psalm, and here is one stanza from it. You read the bolded part. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as he. That's quite a list of attributes, isn't it? it but, they're, but they're all rooted in the fact that he's the rock. He's, he's not uh, just and faithful and upright, you know, kind of in a spotty way or maybe or kind of wispy, iffy. Instead, all those things are solid like a rock. They're unchanging. They're permanent. It's emphasizing the unchangeable faithfulness of God, the immovable firmness of who he is and his attributes. All right, that's Moses' song. Now, at the end of 2 Samuel, we get David's song. Okay, these are pretty major players in the story of Israel. And so now we've got uh, David, and David has a song that we read at the end of 2 Samuel, and this is what uh, David has to say. You read the bolded parts with me. 
The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people you save me, for who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? Now, David had a lot of experience with this uh, because for decades he was on the run from King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill him. And King Saul would pursue him with hundreds of soldiers sometimes, and David would find refuge in caves high in the cliffs of the Judean wilderness. And, and he would find refuge, and he would find a place of security and safety, of defense against Saul, who was trying to kill him. And when we read uh, this, uh, so- this song, then, then we can kind of picture David and his men finding protection, safety, and security in the caves in the rock. They're in the rock. And he even says that, in you, Lord, I take refuge. All right. And so uh, we see that this metaphor of the rock is all about security, protection, salvation, deliverance, protection. All those things come together. Well, uh, we see this repeated in the Psalms a lot. I'm only giving you a few, but here's another one that you can read along with me. Psalm 71, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Someone in our speaking team uh, said, you know, when you go home, you expect your house to be there. Well, it's true of God, too. When we go to God, we expect him to be there. We, we, that gives a certain confidence and solidness and firmness and permanence uh, to our lives to say, hey, we, we go to God to find help, to find refuge and we expect him to be there, and he is. Our houses, by the way, sometimes maybe it's possible that they wouldn't be there when we go home. But one thing doesn't we could ever change, and that is the fact that God is and that he is there. Well, the prophets don't want to miss out on all of this metaphor either, and so we have a couple from Isaiah here. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Ah, he's the rock eternal. Something that actually lasts, something that is permanent, something that doesn't change. He is forever the same. And there is no other rock. There's just one. It is God. And of course, Moses and David and the writers of the psalm and the prophets aren't wanting us to literally go and find caves to hide in. Instead, again, it's all about a relationship. It's about a relationship of faith and trust in God, who is the rock. He's he's the one that gives us a solid foundation in all the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs, the trials, the hardships, the floods, the turmoil of life. He is the solid foundation, the rock. 
Prove it. <laughs> Someone might think, well, prove it. That's nice. You read all those verses out of the Old Testament that God is the rock. Well, prove it. Of course, Jesus comes along and says, here's how you get connected to the rock. Here is how you get rooted in the rock. Here's how you found your life on the rock. It's by hearing my teaching and believing it and obeying it. That's how you get connected to and anchored in something solid and permanent and unchanging that is God, is you hear what I say, you believe it, and you put it into practice. That's how you get connected. And people say, well, prove it, prove it. And Christ's defense is his resurrection, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks. I think, I think there are great reasons uh, to believe in God and that he is the rock. And we're going to be looking at some of those reasons over the next few weeks. But we have a reasonable faith. Our faith is reasonable. It is a faith, but it's not a leap in the dark. When I say that we have a reasonable faith, that it's reasonable to believe in God, uh, I say that because there are good reasons to believe it. There are good reasons to believe it. Next Sunday, we'll look at the fact that God has revealed himself in creation. And you're going to want to come back because Dr. DeYoung is going to come and share with us all kinds of interesting information uh, that demonstrates uh, who God is and what he's like in creation. And you know, we, we live in a world that exists within extremely uh, fine-tuned parameters, very, very extraordinarily narrow parameters for life. And so, so what can explain um, this, this, this almost incomprehensible precision that allows us to even be alive. I mean, it has everything to do with the distance from the sun and the tilt of the earth and the speed of rotation all the way down to atoms and how they function. There's, there's all kinds of incredibly fine-tuning that is necessary for us to be here breathing and thinking and listening and talking. and For us just to be alive takes an incredible amount of precision. What explains that? Well, a reasonable answer is God. That's one. We'll talk about that next Sunday. The Sunday after that, we'll look at uh, how God is revealed in his word, the Bible. What explains the Bible's continuity and accuracy and reliability, preservation and power to transform lives? What explains that? It's a remarkable book. It's a unique book. Nothing like it. What explains it? Well, God's a reasonable answer. I teach a class at Grace College called Exploring the Bible, and it's all about the meta-narrative of the Bible, the big story of the Bible, the plot line of the Bible. And there is one continuous uh, storyline through the Bible, and it gives us the big picture of the history of the world, and it explains really important things, like origin, where do we come from, and, and what's also the origin of evil, and sin, and what's wrong in our world, and what is the solution for that, and what actually is the meaning and purpose of life, and where is it all headed? It's all in there. What a great story. What, and, and you know what's great about it is not just that it's compelling and interesting and exciting and fascinating, it's that it has massive explanatory power. Well, what explains that? 
Well, God's a good reason. That's a, that's a reasonable answer to that. Oh, we're not quite done yet. Uh, after that, we're going to look at Jesus as a revelation of God, focusing on his resurrection. You know, what explains, what explains the fact that Jesus' followers went from being frightened Christ deniers to being brave, joyful proclaimers of the gospel, even to the point of death? What explains that? Well, the resurrection might explain that. And if the resurrection happened, then Jesus is who he said he is. That means there is a God. That's a reasonable, reasonable answer. We'll talk more about that. Here's here's another one. Uh, And this is kind of a complicated argument for the existence of God. But it goes like this, that if we can imagine, because we can imagine or conceive of this this eternal, transcendent, all-powerful personal being called God. The fact that we can actually conceive of this is evidence that he actually is. Now, that's a little hard to wrap my mind around, but C.S. Lewis uh, says something that maybe helps us get uh, close to it. He writes, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So if in our liquid modernity, where everything is rapidly and constantly changing, if we have this desire, this longing within us to be connected to something transcendent, something beyond ourselves, something permanent, something that has meaning and purpose that's bigger and larger than us, if we have that desire and that longing, where does that come from? Well, maybe a reasonable answer is God. Perhaps the best evidence, though, of all of this is lives lived, rooted, grounded, founded, anchored in this God who is the rock. When we live out the truth of this, when we live lives that are grounded in the person of Jesus Christ, and when we live that out, when we do what Jesus said in the parable of the wise man, We build our house on the rock by hearing what he says and obeying it. When we live that out, what's an explanation for that in our lives? Well, a reasonable one would be God. Before he uh, was crucified and resurrected, Jesus said, "Um, you know, even if uh, I resurrect from the dead, the Jewish leaders won't believe in me. He died, he resurrected, the Jewish leaders didn't believe. But later we read, later in Acts we read that many of the priests, many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason was, not only did they hear the message of the gospel, but they also saw the lives of the believers of the church and the community of the church and how the church loved and lived and looked outward convinced them that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, that the resurrection really did happen. When I think of my own life, I think, why? Where does my faith come? I know that it's a gift from God, and I thank him for that. But I think, you know, in the course of my life, how did that all come together? And um, I think about the fact that I I grew up in this church, and my dad died when I was just six years old. And 
I don't, I don't know that I consciously thought about this, but what I observed in my family, especially my mother, was a firm, solid, persevering faith in God. That in all the turmoil and change of losing her husband and having to raise five kids on her own, um, of course, I was the good one. <coughs> in, all, in all the turmoil of all of that, she was unwavering in her faith. And seeing that lived out convinced me deep in my heart that God is and that we can trust him. What does that look like in our lives when we anchor our, when we anchor our lives in God? We sang some wonderful things uh, today. And one of them that I felt was so powerful is knowing that, that when we have sinned, we, we can come and we can confess and we can know that there's forgiveness and cleansing of sin. That is huge. To, to live in the confidence of that, to, to know that there is the, the ability to confess and we don't have to carry the guilt, we don't have to carry the shame. Uh, we can come and, and we can bring it to God. And he's unchanging. His grace, his mercy, his love is the same. Always it's unchanging. What a way to live with, with the freedom of knowing that we have forgiveness of sin. And not just forgiveness of sin, but he's working through his Holy Spirit. This, this solid rock is actually living in us through the Holy Spirit and is working on us and in us. And, and when the difficulties and the challenges of life come, we don't jump up and down and clap and say, yay, but in the middle of those difficulties, we are connected to something that doesn't change. So when we look at our culture and all that's happening, we don't have to get all outraged, remember? We don't have to get all ang- full of anxiety and worry because we're connected to someone that never changes, that has told us what the future already is. We can come to him in prayer and, and, and put those anxieties, those worries, those things that boil up inside of us the anger and the frustration at the change, the fear that the change brings. We can take that, we can pray, and we can put it on the rock that doesn't ever change. We have a humble steadfastness in the middle of a changing world. That's a testimony to the reality that God is the rock. You say, yeah, but, (laughs) you know, yeah, yeah God, God, God as the rock is the one who defends us. He's the one who protects us. And you say, well, yeah, but what about the cancer? Or what about losing my job? Or what about the struggles? What about, what about the... God, remember, the parable doesn't say that there were no floods. <laughs> it said that in the flood... The house stood firm because it was rooted and founded on the rock. It's not, <laughs> the fact that we have an anchor that doesn't mean there is no storm. The presence of an anchor doesn't prevent the storm. But what the anchor does is, is it gives us something solid to be connected to in the middle of the storms of life. And as we live that out with each other and, and where God has put us in the world, that's an evidence of the reality that God is an anchor. Can you verbalize that? Can you, okay, we read Moses and we read David and we read from the Psalms and we read Isaiah. Now, I know they are pretty significant people, right? 
They, they were able to verbalize what it meant to them that God is the rock, that he is the permanent, unchanging, transcendent one. Can we do that? Can we put words, can we put words to the truth that God is the rock? What does that mean for us? Okay, that's a challenge for you for lunch today, okay? You're going to go deep at lunch Share with family, friends, whoever you're with. Try to put words to it. And as we, as we think about it, and as we practice that, as we're able to, to speak out words that explain what it means for us to have our lives connected to something that is permanent and unchanging, that is eternal, that is solid, that is firm in this liquid modernity that we live in. If we can verbalize that and communicate it, that's powerful. But we have to practice it. So practice it with your family and friends today. What does it mean to you to have your life relationally connected to God who is the rock? What does that mean for you? Now, here, most of us are not going to uh, get into a conversation this week with colleagues or friends or family uh, or strangers uh, uh, with, with philosophical jousting on uh, arguments for the existence of God. You know, it's good to you know, have those talks every once in a while, but in our daily, weekly life, you know, we don't generally have those. So how do we bring this into the conversation? Well, here's what I think is the best way, and that is when a, when a, when a colleague or a friend, and this, of course, is, again, thinking about engaging. How do we find common ground? How, we br- how do we bring this truth that God is the rock into our daily lives? So when a colleague or a friend shares something with you, you know, stressed out about my job, angry at my boss, frustrated with my coworkers, or there's a physical issue, or my kid is making some bad decisions and I'm really worried about them, or I have a decision to make and I'm not exactly sure which way to go. All of those kinds of conversations, they happen, they happen. This week you'll have some kind of a conversation like that. And here's the challenge, though, that in that conversation... Uh, what we do is we say, hey, can I pray with you for that? Can I, can I pray about that with you? And what we do when we do that is, is we're not talking about God. We're talking to God. And when we talk to God with someone, it brings God right into the conversation. And we demonstrate the reality that God is our refuge. He is the rock. He's the one that we can go to and know that he is there. And so that's, I think, one way that we can engage this year, and I challenge all of us to, to be sensitive to the opportunity, uh, maybe tomorrow or this week or this month sometime, that when someone shares something with you, where, oh, it's a struggle, it's a problem, it's a decision, it's a fear, that you would say, hey, can I, can I pray with you about that right now? In most cases, that's accepted. And that brings the reality of God into the situation. It's not just this theoretical, philosophical kind of thing we talk about. It's real. It's a relationship. Well, let's start right now, okay? If God is the rock, the one that we can anchor our lives into, the one who is permanent and unchanging and eternal and transcendent, then we can bring everything to him. And find in him refuge, hope, deliverance, salvation, help, protection, 
So often the protection is just protection of our minds and our hearts to continue to have hope in him. So we're, we're all going to practice it right now. We can do this together. It'll take a couple minutes of silence. Well, maybe not a couple minutes. A few moments of silence for you to bring whatever's on your heart and bring it to the rock, our God. Lay it there. Find refuge. Find, find hope. Find help there. And then I will close. Take a couple moments of silent prayer just to lay it before God, our rock. Father, I thank you that we can come to you in the middle of all the ebb and flow, the flux, the change, the impermanence of the things around us. You are solid. You are firm. You are true. You are everlasting. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I thank you that we come to you as one who understands us and who, has, who loves us and who has paid the price to redeem us. I thank you that we can come to you sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ and we can come confidently to the throne of grace and find help when we need it. I thank you, God, that you are the way you are and that we can root, ground, found, and anchor our lives in you pray that we would recognize that that's the most important thing there possibly is, and that you would help us to do that by your Spirit, and that the, the, the hope of that would exude in our, in our life and our love for each other and for those who are not yet part of your family. And so we just exalt you and praise you and worship you as the one true God, our rock, and your son, Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of the church. We are living stones being built into him. Lord God, I pray that your spirit would work with us and through us for your glory and our joy. And all God's people said...